to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is an account of the time of testing or temptation that Jesus faced right before he began his public ministry. And to break this down, I'll ask us to notice four things that we can see here. All right, let's notice first that Jesus Christ was tempted. Okay, so notice that he was tempted. Second, let's, let's notice how Christ was tempted. And then third, let's think about how Jesus fought against this temptation. And then uh, fourthly, why does this matter? Why this matters to you and me? So if you didn't catch that, don't worry. We'll work, we'll work through it. So um, first, notice that Jesus... Christ was tempted. And that, that is a very important theological truth. The writers of the New Testament tell us that the, the fact that our Savior endured moral temptations, this is intended to be a source of great comfort for us believers. This should comfort us. And sometimes when, uh, when we're struggling with, um, we're struggling with dark, secret thoughts, or um, compulsive habits, or embarrassing impulses. Sometimes we think to ourselves, what, you know, what is wrong with me? What kind, of, what kind of person thinks the things I'm thinking right now? What kind of Christian would be struggling with this? What kind of Christian would ever feel what I'm feeling right now? What's wrong with me? Listen to me. You're tempted. Of course you're tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. A Christian leader named Kevin DeYoung writes some words that I think are helpful. He writes this, Temptation is not the same as sin. In the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation. Debts, trespasses, require forgiveness. Temptation just needs deliverance. They're not the same. Just because you're struggling with temptation, he writes, does not mean you are mired in sin. So, if you're tempted, does that mean something's wrong with you? No. Listen, even Jesus faced temptation. And, and look with me at the, um, the situation in which this temptation came to him. 
verse 1 and 2 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, when it says he was full of the Holy Spirit, this means that he was walking in the power of God, not in his strength of the flesh. He's walking in the power of God. And when it says he was led by the Spirit, this means he he was doing what God wanted him to do. So th this is the situation. He's, Jesus, he's walking in God's power. He's obeying God's will. He spends 40 days in fasting and prayer. I mean, just humanly speaking, he's closer to God in this moment than anyone you've ever met. And it's in that situation he wrestles with some really dark thoughts. What, what Ephesians chapter 6 calls the, the flaming arrows of the evil one. So th this, believe it or not, should comfort us. There, there are some people, there are some people who if, uh, if they knew uh, the nature of the private struggles that you wrestle with, there are some people who would make fun of you or condemn you or maybe gossip about you. They say, yo, you're... You're tempted to do what? That's, that's crazy. That's, that's disgusting. What, what's, what's, wrong, what's wrong with you? There are some people who would make fun of you if, if they knew the nature of your inner struggles. Well, listen to me. Jesus Christ is not one of those people. He is not. He doesn't mock us for our temptations. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as, as functioning as our high priest. He's the one who represents us and makes us acceptable to God. And here's, here's how he's described in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, it says, approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not with shame, not with embarrassment, with confidence, it says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Don't you, don't you think those, those words are good news? Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, because Christ himself suffered when he was tempted. Isn't that interesting? Being tempted is described as a form of, of, of suffering. It's a suffering. It says because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help, not condemn, help those who are being tempted. So the first thing to notice here is that Jesus Christ was tempted. Now, now let's, let's look at how he was tempted. What, was, what, 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 what is it that the tempter did to... Uh, to cause him to suffer in this way. Well, the, the, the devil's basic strategy in this passage was to try to introduce confusion or, or doubt as to, um, as to the things God had said, as to God's word. So verse 3 says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, why, why does the devil lead with, if you are the Son of God? Well, in the context, immediately before this event, in Luke chapter 3, we read that Jesus was baptized. And after he was baptized, while he was praying, chapter 3, verse 22 says, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form as a dove, 
And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So God the Father had just said to Jesus, You are my son. And and the devil comes and says, If you are God's son, are you really? Is this really true? If this is true, why are you out here in the wilderness? Is, did, listen, did God the Father, did God really say you are his son? Now, those of you who've read the book of Genesis may recognize that strategy. Isn't that basically what, what, the, what the serpent did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? Remember that? That the serpent slithers up to the woman, and what does he say? Genesis 3, he says, did God really say you, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. And that's what he's doing here with Christ, in a, in a sense. Did God really, did the Father really say you're his son? The Son of God, hungry in the wilderness? If you are God's son, listen to me. Don't listen to that voice that was pronounced over your baptism. Listen to me. So he's just, he's, he's just introducing confusion, doubt. What did God say? Did God say that? He's, he's, so he's questioning God's word. You'll notice he also then goes on to sort of twist God's word. Verse 5 through 8, it says the devil takes Jesus to a high place. The book of Matthew describes it as the top of a mountain. And, and we're, we're not sure. Did this literally happen? Was this some kind of hallucination? I, I don't think it really matters in, in terms of understanding the story. But it says he brings him, and in some, in some sense, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And then the, the tempter says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Do you know that was a lie? That was just a lie. The evil one does not have authority over the kingdoms of this world. Aren't you glad for that? He doesn't doesn't have authority over the kingdoms of the world to give them to whomever he wants. In fact, Daniel 4 verse 25 says, The Most High, in other words, God, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. The devil doesn't have that power. It's it's this, this twisting here of the truth, twisting of God's word. He goes on to twist God's word further in verse 10 to 11. In some sense, again, he takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the top of the temple, and and, uh, he actually quotes straight out of the Bible. From Psalm 91, he quotes some words to him out of context. He takes words that are intended as a promise, twists them and treats them like a command, and he tells Jesus, why don't you jump? Why don't you jump? So throughout the passage, basically what, he, what the, the evil one is doing, he's either questioning God's word or twisting God's word or raising doubts as to what God has said or misquoting Scripture. Just his basic strategy in this occasion with Christ was just to bring confusion to the clarity and the authority of what God has said. It's no wonder in in John chapter 8, Jesus described the devil as the father of lies. He he knew that from his own personal experience, right? In fact, in John 8, he said, when the devil lies, he's speaking his native language, right? He's just, he's a liar. 
He brings fog and confusion and, and, and questions. And I, I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of temptation in, in your life. Just uh, doubts and confusions about, is, can I really trust what God, did God really say? For, here's an example of sometimes how we'll experience that. There, if you look in Scripture, there are so many precious promises that God has made for those who trust Him and obey Him. And sometimes you're going through a really hard time. It doesn't seem like anything's happening. And have you ever had that little voice? Where did that voice come from? This, this little fight. Is that promise really true? Can I trust God? Can I really trust what God said? Have you, ever, have you ever wrestled with that? Maybe I should take matters into my own hand. Forget God. I'll do things my way. Just, did God say that? It's not just promises you find in the Bible. You also, we also find many warnings in the Bible, very clear warnings of, that God tells us that there are certain courses of action that will lead to great pain and suffering and destruction and shame if we follow them. And, and, and there's that little voice that says, how do you know that warning is true? I mean, how do you know? Other people, they, they do that. They seem to be okay. Did God really say that? Right? So we've, we face this, don't we? The devil is such a liar keeps lying. And that, that seems to be the, the main strategy he, he employs with Jesus here in this passage, just raising doubt. If, if you are God's son, did God really say that? Can you really trust this? That's, that's how he's tempted. Now, third thought, how does, he, how does Jesus fight against this temptation? What does he do? Well, notice, I want you to notice something he does not do. Did you notice? He, he does not engage in any kind of extended conversations with with the evil one. There's no long discussions with, with the devil. He doesn't say, oh, you, you, you want me to make this stone into bread. What, what, exactly what kind of bread are you talking about? I mean, I, maybe I should pray about this. There's, no, there's none of that. There's no arguing about, you're misquoting Scripture. Let me show you what this, there's just, he doesn't, it's like he, he just kind of doesn't engage in that. There's no dialoguing with the devil. And sometimes, um, sometimes we kind of do this. We get all caught up in, into sort of bartering with our desires or negotiating with our, our darker angels. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the party, but I'll just have one drink. I'll, just, I'll draw the line there. Or I'll just take one look. Or, I, okay, I'll go, I'll go to the shopping mall, but I'm not going to buy anything today. I'll, I'll, the credit card is just for an emergency. I'll just this, we get into this little discussion, this bartering. I'll give in here, but not there. And listen... <laughs> From my experience, that usually does not end well, does it? You get into a long conversation with your temptations, and, and uh, well, sometimes you just you wind up making decisions you later really, really regret. And so when you look in the Scripture, you'll find that the, the general counsel that you find in Scripture with, with regard to temptation, the general counsel of Scripture is never... Get into a fight with the devil. You know, fight, fight, get in there. No, it's, it, the general counsel with regard to temptation is just stay away. Set some boundaries in your life. Keep, keep yourself from these. Jesus, he did not teach us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, help us to resist temptation. No, he taught us to pray, our Father, lead us not some of us in the church are right now reading through the book of Proverbs. You, you know who you are, right? Did you notice in Proverbs that the word of wisdom is consistently set some boundaries, stay away. When those people invite you to throw in their, your lot with them, don't hang out with those guys. 
Don't go down the street past that person's house. Don't hang out in front of her home. Don't gaze at the wine as it sparkles in the cup. It's just like, stay away. Stay away. You see the same counsel repeated by the apostles in, in the New Testament. You'll, you'll see things like this. Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Just don't leave room for that in your life. 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth. 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So the general counsel of Scripture is kind of to do what Jesus does here. Don't, don't even get into a long, extended conversation with, with your temptations. Just stay away. So that's what he does not do. <laughs> he doesn't dialogue with the devil. What, what, what is it that he does do? Well, it's, it's pretty clear. You've probably heard this before. He just simply relies on the revealed word of God. It's so obvious in the narrative, you can't miss it. He just, he just keeps quoting Scripture. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 8 says, Jesus answered, It is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. That's again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes from Deuteronomy again, verse 12. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So isn't this interesting? Instead of... Um, Instead of basing his decisions on what he's feeling or on what he's thinking, instead, instead of um, charting his course based on what, you know, what made sense to him in the moment or what others in the world are saying, he just, instead of doing any of that, he just very simply trusts God's word. God, my Father said this. I can trust my Father. He just trusts the word. Someone has said um, that the first three words of Jesus' public ministry are, it is written. His, his entire ministry is built on this confidence in God's written word. It is written. He trusted what God said. So I, want, I wonder... Um, I wonder what it would look like for you in your life, for you increasingly to learn to live that way, just to, 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 to make decisions not based on your feelings, not based on the opinions of others, not based on what happens to be acceptable in our culture right now, but just, just to make decisions saying, I'm going to trust God's Word. When I was a young Christian years ago, the old-timers used to say, God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it. And we used to make fun about how primitive that sound. You know, there's great truth in that. There is great truth in that. Pro Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says this. Some of you, do you know these verses? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. And that's, isn't that essentially what Christ does here? He's got all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of troubles, all kinds of dark thoughts that are somehow assaulting him. He just says, you know what? I'm just going to trust what my father said. I trust my father, so I trust what he said. So that's how he, that's how he fought this temptation. Now, fourth thought. 
Why does this matter? Why is this, why is this passage in the Bible? You find this it here, you find it in it's this extended form again in Matthew, very short synopsis of it in the book of Mark. Why, why, why did God, in inspiring Scripture, want us to know about this very personal, private season of temptation that Jesus endured? Well, a couple of reasons. On, on, one, on one level, a passage like this does have some instructional value for us. From this story, as Christians, we can learn a lot about the nature of temptation. We can learn about the strategies of the evil one. We can learn about, you know, the importance of relying on God's Word. So it, it has some instructional value. And, and listen, um, we shouldn't discount that. First, First Peter 2.21 says, Christ left you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. So as, as followers of Christ, we can benefit from just looking at how did Jesus live? What can we learn from that? There's, there's this example for us. But if that's all there is here, a good example for us to follow, church, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Back in the early 1990s, there was a, a very famous uh, commercial on television, and the slogan of this commercial was, Be Like Mike. Drink Gatorade. You remember that? Some of you do. Be like Mike. And the, and the whole idea was Michael Jordan drinks Gatorade, and Michael Jordan is a great basketball player. So if you just drink enough Gatorade, you can be like Mike. You know what? I tried it. <laughs> it doesn't work. I can't be like Mike. Now the, the, now, the temptation for pastors is to take a passage like this and try to turn it into a, a Gatorade commercial. So the whole point of this is be like Jesus. Jesus memorized Bible verses, and he defeated the devil. So if you just memorize enough Bible verses, you won't fall into sin. Like, can I tell you? I tried that too. It doesn't work. I, I, I have more chance being like Michael Jordan than being like Jesus. See, I'm, I'm one of these guys. Am I the only one here? I'm one, I'm one of these guys who sometimes falls to temptation. I'm one of these people who has messed up, who has weakness and frailty and sinful nature inside. And so there's no way, there's no way I can follow this, this, this example. So the question that, that conf we're confronted with in, in this passage is, is there more to this passage than merely a moral example for us to follow? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, there is. And you see that if you read this in, in the context. So in the context here, immediately before he tells us about this personal time of testing that Jesus had, Luke gives us the genealogy, his, his genealogy of Jesus, Jesus' family tree, all right? And so, Luke, this is where you like, why is this? This is so boring. Why am I reading all these names? Luke gives us this, this genealogy. He starts with Jesus, and he says Jesus was, a, his father was Joseph, and his father was someone named Heli, and his father was some name, one named Mathat, and then he just traces all these generations all the way back to King David, then all the way back to Abraham, then all the way back to Noah, and he's just following all these personages that you read about in the Bible, and he, and he traces this all the way back to Adam. So the last person Luke mentions 
before describing this season of tempting is Adam. You could almost say, in Luke's gospel, you read the story of Christ's temptations with the word Adam, 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 just ringing in your ears. So what do you know about Adam? Well, listen, in, in the Bible, as the first human, Adam functions as a representative. He's our daddy, so he represents all of us in the Bible, right? And Adam, representing the human race, he's given a test. Don't eat from that one tree. And he's faced with a temptation. And he fails the test. You know the story, right? And when Adam fell to temptation, when, when, when Adam failed the test, we all flunked out of the course with him. Right? We, we all, when he fell to temptation, all of humanity was plunged into sin and death and sorrow and shame. That's Adam. The New Testament writers describe Jesus as functioning in, in God's redemptive plan as sort of a second Adam. Have you heard that before? Or 1 Corinthians calls him the last Adam. So um, just as Adam served as a representative for all who descend from him. In a similar way, Jesus functions as a representative for all those who trust in him. When Adam failed the test, we all failed with him. But when Jesus passed the test, when he resisted temptation, Anyone and everyone who, who, listen, who trusts in him, basically we're given his grade on our report card. It's kind of like having Albert Einstein take your math test for you. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, that's, that's what it like. This, he takes the test for us. Now, I saw, and that may sound weird, but this is, what, this is what theologians are trying to describe when they talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Some of you, maybe you've heard that, that phrase before. They're, they're just saying that when, be, when we trust in Christ, even though we have failed so many times, God looks at us and says, you know what? I'm going to give you his grade. I'm going to give you his score. He represented you there. Adam represented you there in the garden, and he failed. Jesus, believer, he represented you there in the wilderness, and he passed. And so God says, when I look at you, I, I know about your sins. God's not unaware, but he says, when I look at you, I'm going to choose to see you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to choose to see you that way. And if you've, if you've ever fallen to temptation, have you? Am I the only one? Isn't that good news? Such good news. You know what? I was thinking, how many, how many, how many times do you think you fall into temptation? I couldn't count. I don't know if I could count this last month. I mean, again and again, we just keep failing. We just keep, you ever feel like, what kind of a knucklehead am I? I I'll never get this right. Isn't it, listen, isn't it good news that this, this passage is not primarily about, here's an example so you can learn to pass the test. This, is, this, prim, this passage is primarily saying, Jesus passed the test for you. And if you trust in him, the Father looks at you and smiles. Amen?
So let me close with the, this is the words to an old hymn. I've never been in a church where, this hymn is so old, I've never been in a church where they sang this. I found this in some old hymn once, but this is, they, they sang this 500 years ago. And uh, here's what it says. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects us all. From parent to child, the curse descends, and over all, God's wrath impends. But Christ, the second Adam, came to bear our sin and woe and shame, to be our life, our light, our way, our only hope for us to pray. As by one man all mankind fell and born in sin was doomed to hell, so by one man who took our place, we all are justified by grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we will be tempted before the sun sets today. And we know that we are weak, and so we pray that the instructive value of this passage would come and, and, and just fortify us and strengthen us and prepare us. But we know that before we all gather here again next Sunday, we know that we're going to blow it in some way. All of us will. And so we thank you so much for giving us a Savior. We, th we thank you for one who entered into the suffering of our temptation and conquered our enemy. We thank you for Jesus, for all that you've done through him, for everyone who trusts his name. So give us grace to trust his name. Amen.